Hello and welcome to Concert Pipeline. I'm Steve Jones, and I don't have a co-host today. Jens is not able to record the pod, so I'm doing one solo. Why am I doing that, you ask? Because it's been a couple weeks since we've had an episode out. We've been kind of slow to get shows out as we get through the holidays, and I finish off hunting season, and uh, and, uh, just been pretty busy, really, uh, overall. And uh, also, the December-January time frame isn't the best for concerts either. Some, it's kind of the dry period, really, around the holidays, and um, and bands aren't really touring until we get into uh, late January and into February. And now that we're into February, man, we're going to be bringing it. We have a lot of great um, interviews set up, a bunch that are happening in the next couple of days. So we'll talk about that in a, a bit. Uh, today on the program, I have a band called Ground. Ground Foundation. Um, the lead singer uh, Harrison Stafford uh, actually was is a, a local guy, and I had a great chat with him. Uh, really, he they've toured the world, uh, uh, him and his band, uh, and pl- he's played in I think over twenty five different countries. Um, gained uh, a big f- uh, following. Uh, reggae music and we talk a lot about reggae and uh, and he teaches me a little bit as well I don't honestly don't know uh, a lot about beats and uh, you know and rhythm and you know and playing music in general because I'm kind of I'm just not meant to hold a musical instrument I've tried it uh, I don't have the patience for it so I really respect those that do and they do a good job and Harrison actually um taught music at Sonoma State as well, Uh, and uh, so he has that experience, and that kind of helped him build the original formation of uh, Groundation. Um, He's recently formed The the Next Generation um, and uh, has an album titled The the Same Thing that I definitely recommend checking out. I I really dug it. So um, we're going to get to talk to Harrison in a little bit. in pure historical context, uh, and really for prosperity purposes, uh, I'm going to tell um, my end of the year hunting story. I guess uh, probably against better judgment, but uh, I'm going to do it. Uh, I had wanted when I started the season to keep a journal of all of my hunts, tracking all all of it for the, the first season of hunting. But after many hunts went poorly, uh, I opted against that. It, uh, the journal kind of just died, and I, I didn't keep it. And so really the most uh, telling of all of my stories is really through this podcast in terms of the all of the struggles that I've had this season with hunting and challenges and, uh, and mistakes I've made. Uh, is all documented through Concert Pipeline, oddly enough, which uh, because this is a concert podcast. But it's also a podcast where we talk and we share what's going on with in our lives. Jens and I uh, usually do. And, and usually during between uh, October and January, I guess the end of October and January, that's, uh, that's duck hunting season. And that's been, there've been a lot of stories and a lot of my experiences have been centered around duck hunting um, as I'm learning this new hobby of mine. So um, the duck season ended end of January, January 27th was the last hunting day. And, uh, and I went out on the last day solo, um, and, uh, tried to hit some birds. I, I got a great spot. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the one that I'd been trying to get for the past several hunts beforehand, but there were people in, in the location, but, um, but I got a good spot. It was really foggy. So the weather was okay. It wasn't great. It was, you know, going to shape up to be a sunny day. And, uh, and so there was no rain or, uh, wind or anything, but I went out and I set up by myself a really easy setup, uh, not too far from the parking lot. I was really being positive and I'm like, okay, this, this hunt, I'm going to, I'm going to hit some birds. I'm going to hit at least one bird this time, which it's been a while since I've, I've shot a bird. So, um, so that was my goal. I wanted to just, have, you know, have patience and get out there, have a great time and really focus and, uh, you know, and do well. But, um, but I got out there, I set out my decoys, I put my, uh, jerk cord out, which pulls the decoys. Uh, so there's movement on the water. Uh, I got, you know, set up in a great, great spot, like I said, and, um, and then, uh, I probably 20 minutes after, shoot time 
um, this bird comes, you know, um, right in my direction. Like it's coming right at me and I'm looking at it and I line, you know, line up my shot and I take the shot. I take several shots actually, um, two shots. And then as it passed, I took another one and I missed all three and I missed that bird and I should have shot that uh, bird, but it, um, it lived and gets to live another day, at least, uh, at least past me. Um, so I missed that and it was really a bummer because, uh, because I should have had it and I, and I didn't realize, I, you know, it's hard for me to know exactly what I did wrong. I think I didn't shoulder the gun well enough. Um, and, and I get, you know, I get pretty excited and, uh, you know, and kind of lose sight of the skills that I, that I had, you know, when I was like shooting clays before. So when I was out shooting clays before seasons uh, started, I, it was building skill. I was doing better each time I went out. And, uh, up until the, um, last time I went out, I shot about 75 out of a hundred of the clays. And, uh, and so for me this season to not really be shooting any birds is really confusing, you know, and challenging and frustrating, but, um, but I don't let it get me down. I don't let it stop me. And I didn't, and I never had that quit in me, even though sometimes uh, I felt like I should, probably should, but um, but I didn't want to. I wanted to get better uh, at the um, at hunting this season, and I just I didn't, and I, and I wasn't sure why. Um, and so there were. I mean, that was the big opportunity. Was that one bird? Uh, there were a couple of other chances I could have had at shooting a bird. A bird came in uh, on the outside of my spread, probably. 40, 45, uh, yards away, I would say if I were to guess. And, um, and so, and it was on the water. And so I crept out from my cover and was starting to, uh, uh, line up my shot. And then, uh, like four or five more birds, uh, came, uh, came into the spread from, they backdoored me is what it's called. And they, they came from behind and surprised and like came into the spread. And so I started kind of shooting at those, and I just missed everything. Um, I mean, I, I could have had a, uh, I had a couple shots where I could have had a, a bird probably, you know, and, and, and I didn't get it. So, so I did not kill any birds on the, the last hunting day. And then I've talked before on the podcast about, um, about the blind that we rented and, um, that wasn't producing any birds at all, not just for myself, but for the other hunters, there were very few birds that were taken from the blind that we paid a good amount of money to, to rent for the season. And, um, and I had gone one last time, uh, with uh, a buddy who went into on the blind with, uh, with us. And, uh, and, uh, and we had one opportunity near first light where a bird came in and we both just, shot three shot rounds at it and and missed completely so um another bird got to live another day but um but uh at the end of the season after the season was over uh my buddy joe and my buddy chris and i um we went up to the blind um and we had to get all of our decoys uh we um had at least 150 decoys out on the water uh that we just left there um, and you know, throughout the season. And, um, and so we bagged them up into to garbage bags on the levee. We had a, a beer, a, f- a good field work beer is delicious. And, uh, um, and then took all of our stuff from the, uh, from the blind and all of the decoys and everything back to Chris's truck. And he had driven up it up to the levee so that we could just toss all the stuff on his truck and then, uh, ultimately transfer it to Joe's truck and, uh, to keep it, um, uh, bring it back to, you know, uh, to our location. Right. And, uh, and so we load up the Chris's truck and we get in and he's turning around and his truck got stuck on the levee. Um, he had, he has four wheel drive and everything. And, um, and he just slipped, was slipping in the mud and we didn't want to go in any further. So we, we didn't chance it. Right. Um, Chris called triple A, uh, and at first they said, okay, we'll get someone out, but we weren't on the main road. We were off the road. And so then we got a call that they weren't going to come out actually. Um, and so we had to find another solution. Chris found a, a generous uh, guy on Craigslist who was 
willing to come out and uh, um, and help pull us out of the you know, off of the, off the levee, right? And so we can get out of there. But he's from Sacramento, which was you know an hour away or so, and um, and it ended up him. He ended up taking an hour just to get his truck, and then it would be another hour on top of that. And so uh, someone who lived nearby, uh, luckily, was generous and. Um, and pulled Chris's truck out of the, the levee, but it took, you know, all afternoon and into the evening to, uh, to get the truck out. So, so that was the end of my, my duck hunting season ultimately. And, uh, and at the end, you know, I, uh, I talked to my buddy Joe, uh, who, um, is a, obviously a much better hunter than I am. And, um, and, you know, and we kind of set up a plan for my off season and, uh, a three three step pl- uh, plan, excuse me, um, to practice shouldering the gun relentlessly um, while I'm at home and watching YouTube videos, and to do that as well, because there's some challenges with me shouldering the gun. Uh, you know that it's just I haven't had a lot of practice, so I need to I need more practice there. Uh, also, needed to buy a cheap BB gun and uh, some BBs um, and practice. Um, practice shooting like soda cans and stuff. So that's on my list of things to do. Um, I got the BB gun and, um, and I got, I'm going to start practicing, uh, pretty soon. Um, and, uh, and then really just kind of practice that from a resting position and then also get out and shoot some clays once a month. And a piece of the, the goal there as well is that I'm going to have to use different ammunition than I do typically when I shoot clays. So, uh, something that I didn't realize that I learned that I think was a part of big part of my deficiency in my hunting season is that, um, that I was using, um, when you shoot, when I shoot clays, I I use, um, seven or eight shot, which gives a much wider pattern, uh, when you're shooting, uh, then waterfowl shot of uh, three or four shot. So, um, so I have to be a, a lot more accurate with my shot when I'm shooting at ducks. Not to mention ducks are moving in a, an unpredictable pattern a lot of times, where it's you can typically predict where a uh, clay is going to fly. So it so that makes it easier, right? Um, so. Uh, so those are those are some of the things that are on my um, on my list to uh, to practice in the off season um, before next year. Should I choose to put myself through another season of uh, of duck hunting, which I haven't fully committed to at this point, I I want to see kind of where I where I stand. Um, also, I'm gonna uh, in the off season right now. I'm gonna try and get out. Um, and do some other new activities to, um, that some that maybe don't require as much skill, but might be fun just the same. And, um, I'm going to go out with a buddy and go crabbing and I've never been crabbing before. I've never really been fishing before either. Um, and I mean, so that's, that's going to be fun, uh, to get out and, and do those sort of things. So, um, so that's kind of what's going on with me right now. Um, also excited to uh, take the kids on a road trip in a, a week and a half and take them up to Oregon. I think I'll hit Portland. Uh, never been to Oregon, and I don't travel a lot, so uh, so it should be pretty fun. Uh, we're gonna take a uh, a road trip, make stops along the way, and uh, and have a good time for their winter break. So that's what's new with me, uh, here. Um, and Yen should be on the next podcast. I think, um, we'll see. We got, uh, like I said, we have some, some great guests coming up and there are some, some fun shows that, uh, um, that we'll let you know about, um, at the end of the podcast. So, uh, let's get back into, uh, the music. And again, this is a band called Groundation. Their 2018 album, uh, uh, their album that came out last year is called The Next Generation. Um, And uh, they played at the Independent in San Francisco the other night. I went to the venue and uh, and interviewed Harrison Stafford, the the leader of the band. And we had a really great conversation. To be honest, um, I wasn't able to stay for the show, which I wanted to, but it it was just so late. They weren't going on until 1045 at night. And... I had to get back because I had to work early in the morning. So there's no way for me to kind of do that and, you know, and be comfortable driving um, at midnight or, or possibly later, you know, coming back to, to Napa. So 
Um, so I didn't get to stay for the show, but I did get to see them sound check and, um, and I'm going to include a, a song, the song that they sound checked with, um, here before we get into the interview. So this is a song by ground Asian, uh, from their sound check at the independent, uh, it's a song called warrior blues and, uh, then we'll get into the interview with Harrison. So here it is. It's concert pipeline. This is Harrison Stafford of ground Asian, keeping the music fresh, pure, one love, roots reggae, groundation to the world. Mike, is it running away from you? <laughs> I was trying to. 
I mean, like over the horn. What do you mean? Uh, it just seemed to kind of be bending its way. Is it? I'll tighten it up then. Want to make sure it's, it's getting you. All right, lock us cool. down, Raj. <laughs> oh, world's better. <laughs> right? Sounds good. Uh, I'm here with Harrison Stafford from Groundation. How are you doing, Harrison? Yes, you are. I'm doing well. Nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. And, Pleasure. And so it's a kind of a hometown show for you, sort of, because you're you're from Sonoma, right? Uh, no, I went to university in Sonoma. Okay. How, um, how long ago was that? I mean, I mean, I know it was a while. Ago. Twenty, twenty-five <laughs> years ago. But you're not from the area anymore. Where, I'm from where the East Bay, okay. from Pleasanton. Yeah, so okay. I'm from the East Bay. Formed the group in Sonoma at Sonoma State University. And uh, now I live back in the East Bay. Okay, okay. So uh, you've been to shows at the Independent before. You've played here before, I'm sure. Right, yeah, many times. times. Yeah. Many times. The Justice League yeah. back in those days. Gosh, been a while, huh? So. It has. This was actually a dirt outside area. Really? Yep. Okay, I haven't been here that long ago. So, I mean, it, I mean that far back. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's been a while. Yeah, so, so tell me about um, kind of uh, growing up in, in uh, your, your family. I want to hear kind of your, your music back. Background. Sure. I, know, I know your your grandfather was a saxophonist. He played saxophone, yeah, in the jazz band. This is like from the 20s and 30s times. And my father played jazz piano. Yeah. Uh, so growing up, my first music was Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Thelonious Monk. And uh, that's why on the new album, Next Generation, it starts with this big band 12 horn arrangement. Yeah. It was because I grew up listening to Duke Ellington and Count Basie Orchestra. So I always had dreams from years and years of starting a Groundation album with this 12-horn symphony. And, uh, and there it was, Next Generation. Yeah, so did, you, did, your, uh, did your dad do a lot of shows as well, like when he's... Cause no, no, he, his, his jazz gigging career was over when he had the, 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 the two boys. And, and did everything there. Yeah, he went to California for the job. He's originally from Massachusetts. Okay. Um, and they lived in New York. My brother was born in New York, and I was born here in Livermore, California. Um, and uh, Jewish family, so go to Hebrew school. I would go to regular school during the day, yeah. and then I would go to Hebrew school in Walnut Creek at B'nai Tikva. So I'm an East Bay guy, okay. you know. I went to first grade in Walnut Creek, so I'm yeah. from, from the Bay Area as well. And all right. Yeah, and, and so was that like a, 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 having that much school? Was that overwhelming at all, or was it just pretty? Yeah, that's kind of where reggae entered my life was, yeah, uh, yeah you know, um, I understood the family um, lineage and the history of Judaism and all these things. Uh, but yeah, being in California... Here I go to public school during the day, and none of my friends are Jewish. Yeah. And then they go home and play, and I have to go to synagogue and temple learning Hebrew, which was a language no one spoke. You never saw it anywhere. So I didn't like it. No. And my parents knew that. You know, I said, I don't understand why you got to do this. You know. Um, and then at about seven years old or so, my brother began listening to Black Uhuru and Bob Marley. And I started hearing these songs, you know, like Bob Marley Exodus, you know, we're leaving Babylon, going to our father's land, the children of Israel, yeah. uh, and all this music about Moses and Aaron. And it was really my music. I was like, okay, well, here I am, this, this only kid that's going to public school and Hebrew school and doing this thing, but there's this music that is also speaking to me in his, in his mind. Yeah. While other kids were listening to pop music, you know, MTV was starting at the time. Sure. Um, I had reggae, and I used to talk about Peter Tosh and Rastafari in class, and kids would make fun of me. And then years later in high school, they would learn about Bob Marley and love yeah. Bob Marley's music. And I would You were say, out oh, of the curve was, there, yeah, 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 yeah. That was the music that I was showing you, you know, in the fifth grade, you know, and this and that. So, yeah, reggae music was special to me. Yeah, so being such a big fan of Bob Marley, did you get to ever get to um, uh, play with or meet any of his uh, his children who perform? Uh, I've certainly met all of them. You know, we played mm -hmm. so many concerts, Groundation around the world with yeah. Damien and Kaimani and uh, uh, Ziggy, of course. We played many shows from Hawaii to Europe. Um, but I've never really sat down. I've met them to say Just, hello. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've more spent time with Femi Man Barrett and members of the Whalers yeah. um, and really spent time musically 
try to get some wisdom from the original musicians that yeah. were around Bob Marley. Yeah, I, I interviewed Ziggy years ago, and I, I talked to him about losing his dad and everything. It was really impactful. I mean, because he's like, "There's no losing my father. I can talk to him anytime I want," you know, sort of thing. Yeah, so that's like that's a beautiful thing. Larger than life moment, kind of, you know, which is really cool. Right. Bob's music obviously has impacted so many everybody. Right? Yeah, you millions know, so. and millions. Bob Marley is the face of freedom and the face of uh, musicals search for justice. Yeah, it's Bob Marley. And so, when did you pick up the guitar? When did you? When did um. My older brother, again, had some guitar lessons, and he really wanted to play the bass. Yeah. And so I said, you know, I'll, I'll play the guitar. So I picked up for my older brother, maybe 12 years old, mm-hmm. yeah. around that age, started really playing, and reggae music, and singing. I, I was singing from before then. I, I felt like I had a singing voice. Yeah? I, yeah, I really did. Even from Hebrew school time, my mom wanted to be a cantor, you know, a, a singer in the, in the synagogue. Um, so... Yeah, I really felt like singing was in my bone, and the guitar was like a way of expressing that. I could now write songs. I know all these chords, and you know, I realized that in studying jazz, it really gives you a polyrhythmic and a non-diatonic chordal movements and things that are outside the box. Right. Um, to create your sound, you know, what it is that makes you special and you unique. So that's where you know the guitar and the jazz and the singing all came together to produce Groundation today. Yeah, and, and you, I know you took a lot of family trips as a, a kid as well, and so tell me about that impact for you. Like, yeah, I mean, uh, I think uh, the first was uh, experiencing poverty, third world, you know, and seeing that it's black people who are suffering and struggling. And um, not only there in the Caribbean, but also realizing from the music I was listening to was, I don't understand, there's no white people speaking about equal rights and justice and singing about these things, which seem to be... Uh, integral to uh, sustaining the humanity and bringing the human race to a better place, right? That's why we have children, is to have tomorrow be better than today. So, um, yeah, I really saw the poverty and and, um, my experience as a teenager then in Zimbabwe was when you could see how besides California, this beautiful place, the world is, is sometimes tomorrow can bring about destruction and chaos and things change in a blink of an eye and this lovely bubble of the bay area is nice but it's not really what the world is facing right and and california is a reflection of the world you know we are here to try and balance our planet not only in the ecology and the environment but we're here to balance human energy to try and create a a a level of unity and love for all people you see today that we're far from that and that's why that's why after the four years break groundation had to come back and come back strong with a purpose yeah and and so let's talk about that so tell me about the next generation and how that came about we and the kind of the the point where you decided okay this this is something that needs to happen we need to wipe the slate and kind of start yeah i mean i always knew that um that groundation is something that's that's my voice and my life yeah. and uh, whether I love playing straight reggae music or not really the fusion and the long solos through composed these these compositions is 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 what's in my heart when it comes to how I write music so I had songs yeah. that were groundation songs um, at the same time seeing what's happening socially and politically with this president we have here in America, what's happening in Brazil, what's ha- this wasn't the time for me to sit, you know. I'm not a young man, but I'm not an old man either. For sure. So now is the time to put the energy out there. I have three small children. I better be doing works to uplift them and make their future bright. So Groundation was there and alive. And in trying to work with the other members, keeping in mind that we've had lots of drummers, lots of horns, lots of background singers, lots of percussions come through the group through the years. Uh, speaking to the, 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 the long-time members, keyboard, bass, Marcus and Ryan, they wanted to do it, and they didn't want to do it. And I said, okay, well, if you guys don't want to do it, it's fine, but I'm not going to wait. Uh, I need to go and do the work. Yeah. So you realize that the energy needs to be right for this music. So it's time to start putting the pieces together to create the next generation, yeah. to move Groundation forward, which to me is like God saying that, you know, start fresh. Yeah. Because for me, reggae music, and really reggae music, my music, my singing, is really me putting out a social message 
You know, Grand Nation doesn't have party songs and smoke weed and, you know, our message is very focused and that's me. I realize that in talking to people, politically or socially, you get into fights and argument, but musically you can reach people in a softer way. Almost they don't even know sometimes what they're singing and what they're doing, you know? Yeah. But you're talking about the right things. So Groundation was my way of expressing those, those feelings and uh, it need to move forward in that sense that forming the group originally in Sonoma State with jazz musicians, sure. uh, they don't know reggae. They had to learn reggae. Had to learn I had to show them Burning Spear and, you know, so it's not really in them. Yeah. You can't force somebody to do something. If you don't feel it anymore and you don't want to be a part of it, then that's fine. But I'm going to continue on. And that's when the opportunity came to start with a fresh crew, a crew that maybe had more of the heart, you know? Yeah. For the music. Yeah. Uh, I'm a very strict person when I don't drink alcohol, I don't party, these things. Other members did quite strongly. A lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it never was good for the music. So now to be able to put a crew together that's really focused on what we're doing and the message and you feel it, it feels stronger. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you mentioned you had Groundation songs. So um, tell me about the difference between when you're making music and when you're writing songs like songs that you know are, are Groundation versus uh, solo uh, songs for you. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm writing songs all the time. Yeah. People ask me, you know, what uh, advice to give to songwriters. That's my thing is just write. Don't sit down and say, oh, I'm going to write a hit song right now. Sure. I'm going to write a roots reggae song. Just pick up your guitar and play and sing and whatever happens is, is, is what happens. So I write music all the time. And some music are personal. Um, some music are very simple, simple reggae songs like Bob Marley, three minute song, ABC section, diatonic, which means staying in one key, you know, and that's great. But for Groundation, there always has to be something special about the song, about the arrangement. Um, and a lot of it is when it gets to polyrhythmic, because to me, it was about, in studying jazz, it was about trying to digest music to gain the skills, to have the tools to create anything in your mind. And so when I start doing things like Picture on the Wall or Weeping Pirates or these things that have little bars of three and bars of four, and, and, and that to me is groundation. There's no other reggae groups that do that. Fourth Dimension, three bars of nine, two bars of 11. Uh, I don't know if you play music, I, but I don't. So. Common time is yeah. four four, uh, yeah, which is four beats to the measure. Sure. Now we're talking about fives and nines and sevens, so the music is skipping around. Yeah, it's all. And, and it, yeah, it's very different. But I'm not forcing it. I picture on the wall. Doom 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 boom doom 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 Chick of one, chick of two. You know, so it's a three bar of three and a bar of four. Yeah. But it sounds like picture on the wall because nobody has a song that does that. So it's instantly recognizable as that song. And unlike other songs where you have, you only have three major chords yeah. in the key. And so if you do these chords a certain way, you could sing a hundred songs over the same chord progression, right? But on picture on the wall, you can only sing one song. Yeah. And yeah. that's foundation picture on the wall. And to me, that's what makes it special. Also, the long solos through composed compositions, which means they don't have any repeats. There's no chorus. There's no hook, um, which is not very smart when you're trying to sell music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's deliver not music. Turn into one of those hits or anything. But yeah, it, but you have your yeah. Own. I mean, that's kind of the balance that Groundation is. You know, our success has been that the music is very unique, and our failure has been that the music is very unique. Yeah. So you either love it or you don't, and it hits you or you don't. I mean, it's, it's different. It's not what you've heard. Uh, a friend of mine, I did a project with Brain Damage, a French dub pioneer. Uh -huh. And he said, I went on a website. I had the top 20 reggae bands in the U.S. Sure. And Grandation was on there. And he listened to the first five or six. And he said they all sounded the same. And then he went to Grandation and was like, It's not like anything. It doesn't sound anything. But to me, it's more roots. When it comes to roots reggae music, Bob Marley's music, one sure. drop music, where the drummer's not playing beat one. They're going one, two, three, four, yeah. Chick, 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 one, chick, 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 chick. Not following the rules, yeah. No yeah. other music yeah. does that. That's reggae, roots reggae, 
that's its signature. You can put a but you're playing a rock beat now. Yeah. It's not the original signature of that style. And Groundation uses one drop, and most of, most of the songs is one drop based. Sure. So that to me is, even though I, I talk to some journalists and they say, Groundation is not reggae to me, it's too strange. To me, it's more reggae than, than even, what you're yeah, listening you're to, to yeah. as reggae today, yeah. you know? Uh, but it's just different. Different people, different backgrounds. Yeah, and so you, you like to record on analog, too, so t- tell me about I, that. I like to make things difficult. Yeah, right? I mean, because there's, I mean, I think you found a little bit on the way, along the way, there's easier ways to do it, but but there's also a rawness, and, you know, it's like filmmakers wanting to actually, you know, shoot on film. Right. You know, I mean, so tell me tell me what that analog is to you. Um, it's a band. It's musicians playing together, yeah. which doesn't happen today. Music is produced in layers. Oh, yeah. You Bands know, email tracks across the country sure. and uh, uh, don't even have to be in the same spot. Has his program drums, yeah. program bass, has a guitar come in, plays the guitar. Next day has the keyboard come in. Play the, this is a band counting off the song and getting ready to play. Um, and you have to be tight. There's yeah. no fixing. You can't move the nope. guitar that was too early. You can't move the kick drum because it was late on that beat. Yeah. You can't, oh, play the horn line once and we'll copy and paste it. There's no copy and paste. Yeah. You have to play the whole song, you know? Uh, so to me, that's the tightness of the band. And that shows that the band is ready to play and well rehearsed and what's on the tape was on the tape. And we even have the soloists playing live. Yeah. And if they go, oh, let me try that solo again. No. Okay, well, you're, we'll you're track seven. Yeah. You can try it, but there's no one do. So you better have a better one. Yeah. You know, this is it. We're erasing your tape. There is nothing to go back on. And it's a lot harder and a lot more expensive. But to me, it was a process. From Young Tree, the first albums, each one, teach one. I spent $20,000, $30,000 trying to mix it to get it to sound right. And then I met Jim Fox, who was a world-renowned yeah, engineer in Jamaica. Engineer. And I said, okay, Fox, you're the man I need. Yeah. So for Hebron Gate, I flew him to California. I recorded all on analog tape. That's the sound. Never went back from there. Yeah. And that's 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. And so, um, so t- tell me about how, how you've come from that first album that you created to where you are now. Like, what it, you know, you've learned a lot. Now. So you've, have, taught, you've taught a lot as well during that time. time I did teach the history of reggae music yeah. um, at Sonoma State University, the same university where I met the original members and formed the group. Yeah. Um, and that came from the original drummer, Jason Bodlovich, uh, who was like, man, you know so much about this music, you gotta teach a course, you know? And I de- developed this thing, uh, and it's a beautiful thing, because reggae music has a history, like jazz or hip hop and these things, which is a chronological telling of how the music developed. Um, and then it also has this thing called Rastafari, yeah. which is infused in the music in the late 60s and 70s with Bob Marley. So you have a political and social message that those musics don't have. Maybe some of the individuals in those musics do, but this has a certain thing that goes back to the Bible, that goes back to Ethiopia, and it goes through the bloodline of slavery and what we're living today. Yeah. And it's, it's a, something that's crucial. I thought that one of the reasons why I wanted to teach it was in, in taking the, the university's course in the history of the United States, there was a little paragraph on Marcus Garvey, three or four little sentences. I said, man, Marcus Garvey. If it wasn't for Marcus Garvey, you would never have had a Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X. Malcolm X's parents were Garveyites. You know, and this is a Jamaican man, crucial in the movement of Rastafari. Um, so it, it's, it's something that is a privilege and an honor to teach that knowledge. Yeah. And I give thanks for the history and for those individuals who gave their life to making ours better. Yeah, and have you kept up with any of the students that you've taught? Like, have you kind of followed them? Yeah, in fact, um, one of them, Aaron, is uh, the head of uh, the International Zojack, which is a a label in Jamaica and Florida that that issue a lot of the digital uh, recordings that are out there. And he's living in Jamaica now, and and, uh, uh, yeah, he was one of the students there at, at Sonoma State. Nice, nice. Yeah, it's great. And and you've you've learned a lot yourself from uh, your trip to uh, trips to Jamaica and Africa and kind of a lot of, of that's course, infused. Of so. course, and uh, and also from the second album, each one teach one with Ross Michael and Marcia Higgs. From then we go to Don Carlos and the Congos and Apple Gabriel and Ijeman and Pablo Moses. So yeah, the elders, those people who really gave me the inspiration. Yeah, that's who I really still want to be around. I want to, I, want to, I want to experience their knowledge and their wisdom and how they're able to stay focused in that struggle 
yeah. seeing the poverty, seeing the world turning its back on, on, on the reality of things. Okay, I see that this commitment is not for five years or ten years. It's lifelong commitment to the struggle. Yeah. And they are beautiful people. And in teaching the course and meeting the people, then come holding on to Ja, the documentary film that yes, I produced. Yeah, yeah, you worked so, on that for a long time, yeah. Yeah, about 17 years yeah, it took. Yeah, a really to, long to time, yeah. Um, <laughs> and that was just, yeah, meeting with these people. Elder Rasta, who were there in 66 to see Selassie come. And, um, and they were moved to become Rasta, to cite Rasta from that point. Um, and uh, what they gave to the world is a very special blessing that people are just coming to understand the fullness today. Yeah. And, and you've played in so many countries. I mean, even last year, France, Argentina, Spain, sure. on, a, on a tour. Like, tell me about some of those experiences uh, f- uh, for you just I'll, being... I, I, don't, I don't travel, so, like, okay. I don't... I, I'm taking the kids on a road trip to Oregon in two weeks, and that's traveling that's for me. That's traveling like, right there. I'm, I've never it. been to Oregon, even, and it's our neighbor, right? right. Like, I, just, I don't get out a lot, so... <laughs> I mean, there's beautiful people all over the world, yeah. and there's also dangerous and evil people all over the world. Sure. Um, and uh, the experiences of a groundation show is different yeah. because people come there with that spirituality and that, that physical sense that, yeah, I come here with love and I come here with an open mind and, and, and a true caring about the person next to me and the people on the stage and we care for them and it's a family thing. So yeah. whether we're touring in Argentina, whether we're touring in Germany, you know, it's the same people uh, who want the same things for their children and their families. Um, you know, we, uh, we have a lot of work to do. I, I give thanks because, as I said, coming from the East Bay, a white kid yeah. uh, from California, a Jewish kid, uh, and I've played in Morocco, Casablanca, after the evening prayers in the Hassan Dua Mosque, the biggest, largest mosque in Africa, to 30,000 Muslim wow. Arab people playing roots reggae music, yeah. groundation. And that to me was like, man, nothing, nothing can stop music. Nothing, no, no barrier, no wall can stop the music from reaching the people. Yeah. And you see that now. Look how far I've come. And, and it's a beautiful thing. Life is magical when you have those moments. You say, wow, to think an American Jewish kid from California yeah. playing roots reggae here in Morocco to right? Arab Muslim North Africans. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And do you get nervous at all like when you're playing to an audience? I used to. Or, I used yeah. to. But I, I think you've been doing it a long time, obviously. But, yeah, yeah, and Ginger Baker, the drummer for Cream, okay, Ginger yeah. Baker says it the best. He says, nerves for a musician is not so good. No, not a good combination. So if you can, you got to get rid of that. Yeah, yeah, if you can calm them out and cool them down, then it's for the better, you know? Yeah. You never, it's never good for the music. Yeah. Um, so tell me, um, the French Reggae Awards, you, got, you uh, just announced you got a couple of awards. Yeah, we uh, did. There, it was so. very surprising. Beat out Ziggy Marley, as you mentioned. His Rebellion Rises, a great album. Yeah. Uh, but Groundation Next Generation was given the award by Reggae Point FR, which is a website as well as a magazine, uh, a very well-respected reggae magazine. 16,000, more than 16,000 people, press, media, fans from all over the world voted. Yeah. And Next Generation won Best Roots album last year. Nice, nice. Um, so as, uh, as we kind of wind out here, um, tell me a little bit about um, your experiences of, for mu- music in the Bay Area, you both kind of going to shows and also some of the memorable places and, uh, and audiences that you've performed for. Yeah, I mean, the Bay Area has been a beautiful thing. And growing up with my background musically and, and my parents' support for the love of music, I was able to experience, I mean, you know, we're here. So yeah. I've seen the Grateful Dead. I've seen Pink Floyd. I've seen, uh, you know, uh, Jethro Tull and so many of these classic groups, um, as well as all the reggae people from, you know, from Bunny Wheeler to Toots. This is when I was, a, you know, a kid, when I could first go to shows at 15, 16, yeah. to Palookaville and Santa Cruz and to these venues, uh, the Warfield in yeah. San Francisco. Um, even the, um, the UC theater in Berkeley used to do a lot of Peter Tosh celebrations. Um, and that's where you have to give thanks. You're here. And I think also, uh, musically here in the Bay area, um, there's a big reggae scene because of Bob Marley, because Bob Marley was on tour and was sliding the family stone in 1972 and was kicked off the tour here in the Bay area. So from that time in 1972, Jamaican Rasta, Bob Marley's crew, has a hardcore foundation here, like Rasta Cruz, Santa Cruz. Yeah. Um, so I think that 
this is a beautiful place, and I'm very fortunate and very lucky to have been here at the right time because it's a reggae-friendly place. You know, um, Wisconsin or you know, Nebraska, yeah. not so reggae-friendly. Yeah. yeah, not so reggae-friendly. Uh, California is, and with that, you have the open mind. Yeah, the attitude that um, we can do better, you know, let's just love, love each other, you know? That's what's important, right? It is, yeah, and teaching that to our children instead of teaching them hate. Yeah. That this person or that person that you don't even know is bad or worse than you or less. No, no. I don't, no it's bad. I, I don't let my kids watch any of that on TV or anything. The news is never on. Like, it's just dark and everything. There's a lot of darkness out there. And I yeah. try, try and just focus on, you know, having that connection with, with my kids, you know, I mean, because they're going to get enough of it. You can't shelter them completely from it. But, you know, you, you want to have that positive influence with them, right? So. Yeah, you do. I mean, uh, my three kids are small still, six, four, and two. Um, and I give a little bit of thanks because if they're 12 or teenagers, they'd be asking a lot of questions. Yeah. Why is it this way? What happened? Why didn't we do this? I see this thing is wrong and we know what the right thing is. Why aren't we doing the right thing? I don't know, you know, those yeah. those are tough answers, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a dangerous time, but a time that we're living. And if we're living, that means that we have the energy and the impact. So go out and do it. Yeah, and are your kids? Are they? I mean, it's. I know they're young, but are they getting into music? They already? are, they, of course. Yeah, you see that. You can't. See yeah, them you can't be. In your footsteps, maybe. You can't. I have a. You know, my wife is Jamaican, so you know, you can't keep the music no, out of their no. soul. You know, they come they with have, you on tour too, or like when you can. No, no, no. Uh, my wife is here tonight. Give thanks, but um, she's been home with the children um, for the last few years. But you know, when they get older, for sure. Yeah. Road managing and, and doing a roadie, you yeah, know, carrying yeah. the guitars. Yeah, they have to. My yeah. son Aaron, he better. You, you of course put him into it, right? Yes. So. Yes. Yeah. He'll, I'm sure he'll want to, though. You know, no, he will. He'll enjoy it. It's so. a great experience, as long as you keep your head on. Right. Right. Well, awesome. Well, Harrison, thank you for taking the time today. My and, pleasure. And uh, yeah, have a great set tonight. Okay. Thank you, ma'am. Looking forward to it. That was the interview with Harrison Stafford from Groundation here on Concert Pipeline. And now it is time for the last segment of the podcast. It's time for the music news. All right. Um, have uh, a couple of stories that, uh, that are interesting and, um, you know, uh, and really struck my fancy. So we're gonna uh, we're gonna get into those stories. First up is about Ozzy Osbourne. Um, he was admitted to the hospital for flu complications. Um, his wife and manager Sharon has confirmed that the uh, legendary metal frontman has been hospitalized as he recovers from the flu. Uh, as some of you may have heard, posted Sharon on social media, Ozzy was admitted to the hospital following some complications from the flu. His doctors feel that the this is the best way to get him on a quicker road to recovery. Thanks to everyone for their concern and love. Um, the update on Ozzy's status comes a week after he was forced to postpone an entire UK and European tour on doctor's orders. Uh, at the time, the 70-year-old was diagnosed with a severe upper respiratory infection, which the doctor uh, felt could develop into pneumonia given the physicality of the live performances and an extreme travel schedule uh, through Europe in harsh winter uh, conditions. So um, good thoughts to Ozzy. Um, they say a, a physicality of the live performances. Uh, yeah, I saw Ozzy last about a decade ago perform live, I think, and he's not moving around the stage a ton. I mean, he's still out there doing it, and mad respect to, to the guy for doing it because uh, he is uh, a rocker if ever there is one, right? I mean, he is a legend. Uh, but I, I don't remember him moving a ton on stage. Um, so... Um, I hope he gets well soon. Hopefully he gets better. I know he has a Bay Area date that I think was already, already had to be postponed and rescheduled. Um, and, uh, hopefully he'll be able to, to do that. He's on the, uh, no more tours to tour, which, uh, as we talked about in a previous podcast was, uh, maybe misleading a little bit in that he's not saying he will never tour again after this tour, but, his tour schedule just won't be exactly what it was before. So, uh, so that's the Aussie story. 
Um, thoughts out uh, to him and uh, his family, and hopefully uh, he recovers very quickly. So um, from one rocker to another, uh, ACDC is reportedly finish, uh, finishing or has finished their new album. So uh, they've completed work on their new album that will be a tribute to late guitarist Malcolm Young, according to a satellite radio personality. Sirius XM host Eddie Trunk claims the unnamed insider revealed some de- uh, uh, details about the new record. He said, I have a source that will remain nameless, but a very, very well-placed, reliable source regarding ACDC, who I did run into uh, and asked about uh, ACDC. Um, uh, this source told me, uh, to his knowledge that, uh, the album is done, that they went to the studio in Canada, made the record and, uh, what people speculated on, meaning these, uh, these were riffs, ideas, and more of a tribute to Malcolm Young is true. Uh, meaning that Malcolm, uh, had a bunch of stuff recorded that they worked off of and they sort of incorporated the record. Uh, so this is sort of a, a unity thing come together, uh, put out some of Malcolm's music and celebrate ACDC. He didn't tell me about Axl Rose or who's on it. Uh, He just basically said these guys went in. They uh, went in off of some stuff that Malcolm had. It's a celebration of Malcolm. There's a record done. Whether and how that comes out, they're not sure. And whether uh, they play or not, uh, not sure. So not a lot of details on uh, new ACDC album, except that it might be done. Uh, I'm interested to hear some of that. Um, that would be really cool and, I mean, a, a really good nod to Malcolm, which is such a backbone of uh, ACDC. Um, yeah, and we'll see if, uh, like I said, we'll see if Axl Rose is doing it. I'd heard somewhere also, and I think we talked about this on a previous podcast, that uh, Brian Johnson might have been involved in uh, in this album as well, uh, which is also really um amazing because he's you know he he can't perform live anymore but he might be able to do something in the studio uh it would be good to hear um brian come in at least at least on a track or something you know uh to uh tie in um his acdc roots right so so that's pretty cool let's talk about kiss shall we another another classic rock band uh, we're going classic rock today, at least uh, on the first part. I think a lot of the the stories that we have are classic rock. Um, so, um, Kiss stars Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley have endorsed the idea of past members of the group joining them on stage during their farewell tour, but are dead set against playing uh, with one former member ever again. So, just prior to the launch of their end of the road tour. Paul and Gene spoke with Guitar World about the idea of previous members making social guest appearances during the track, and while they're open to the idea of original guitarist Ace Freely, founding drummer Peter Chris, and former longtime guitarist Bruce Kalak uh, making appearances, they've ruled out the possibility of sharing the stage with ex-guitarist Vinnie Vincent. Paul Stanley said via UCR, uh, I'll say that this is a celebration of this band and its accomplishments and its history. So anybody who was short-sighted enough to think that this should be a reunion is missing the point. Uh, That being said, I'd love to see everybody at one point or another be on stage. And if that doesn't happen, it's their choice, not mine. But the singer and guitarist also said, now Vinny, that's one exception. And for so many reasons, uh, I would say uh, that's not someone who I would who I want to celebrate. And Simmons agreed with that as well. Um, he said, it's worth stating that Vinny has sued the band and lost 14 times. I'm not here to cast any aspirations. He's a talented guy. That's why he was in the band. But would I depend on him to get up on stage and do anything? Never. Can he come to the shows? Of course, anybody can, but on stage, never. Sounds like <laughs> sounds like Vinny's gonna have to buy a ticket because he's not even gonna be on the guest list, let alone on stage. That's uh, that's what I'm reading into that. So, ah, uh, the drama with classic rock bands and uh, uh, and their revolving lineups and yeah, Kiss has had a bunch of members in you know uh, cycle through. I think right. So, um, so it sounds like Vinny not really welcome in that. And I don't know if he's, you know, asking to play or wanting to show up anyway, but, um, but it's interesting to, to hear it and just put out on the table that, nope, not, not welcome, not going to show up. Don't, don't do it. So, um, so good times. 
Uh, good times over in Kissland. Um, Slash has announced a North American solo band tour. Um, we were talking about um, Axl Rose and his work with ACDC. Well, um, from from there, we got a story about Slash. Um, and uh, he's Slash featuring Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators have announced dates for a summer tour of North America in support of their latest album, Living the Dream. Solo band of uh, Guns N' Roses icon will be again the 17 show month long series in San Francisco on July 15th. The Warfield uh, hitting several major Canadian markets along the way before it wraps up in Orlando, Florida, mid August. Um, and produced by Michael Elvis uh, Basquette. Um, Living the Dream debuted at number 27 on the US Billboard 200 upon its release last fall. So that's what's going on with Slash. I don't usually delve into the pop world too much, and when we do talk pop, usually I uh, toss those stories to Jens to cover, uh, but he's not here, and this one was kind of interesting to me, so, um, so we'll include it, and it's on Justin Bieber, uh, talking about his music hiatus. Um, when the world needed Justin Bieber the most, he disappeared. He hasn't released a full-length album since 2015's Purpose, and outside of a few cameos uh, for DJ Khalid and uh, Pooh Bear, uh, he has remained relatively quiet. In his wake, numerous would-be uh, usurpers tried to climb uh, his gilded pop throne and mostly failed. Fortunately for his well-being and unfortunately for his faithful uh, accolades, he seems to be enjoying uh, wedded bliss, I think he just got married to Haley Baldwin, I guess, uh, and isn't in a rush to return to the studio. Uh, in a new cover story for Vogue, he described his pro prolonged absences from the music industry. He said, just thinking about music stresses me out. Uh, I've been successful since I was 13, so I didn't really have a chance to find out who I was apart from what I did. I just needed some time to evaluate myself, who I am, what I want out of my life, my relationships, who I want to be, uh, stuff that when you're so immersed in the music business, you kind of lose sight of. Uh, later in the interview, Bieber shared how his early career shaped his need to distance himself from the pop machine. Uh, I was real at first, and then I was manufactured as slowly. Uh, they just took more and more control. Uh, I started really feeling uh, myself too much. People love me. I'm the shit. That's honestly what I thought. I got very arrogant and cocky. I was wearing sunglasses inside. So that's his uh, story. He's stepping away from music, at least for a while. He's not worried about it. He And uh, really, I'm not either. But uh, uh, I know there's a lot of fans of his that are curious and waiting for uh, for new music. But sounds like they're going to have to uh, wait a little bit longer. So, um, all right. Uh, so Lauren Hill disappointed on an Australian tour. Uh, she should have canceled her show, people say. Um, clearly and well, the groundbreaking artist arrived more than an hour late to an anticipated Sydney show uh, many are demanding refunds for. Um, so her uh, solo debut was a defining album for people of the generation, and the artist's Australian tour promised pure uh, indulgent nostalgia. Hill would be playing the record in its entirety to commemorate its 20th year. So that's those shows are really exciting. I really love when a band does that and plays a monumental album in its entirety, something that is made to be played you know from beginning to end and that so many people l live for and don't just pick a track or two out of but that really love uh and I've, I've been to a couple of shows myself for some of my favorite bands that played my favorite of their album in its entirety and it was among the best concerts i've ever been to so I know the excitement of going to a show and expecting to see your band play that, that album. I mean, especially when they promote it like that, right? I've seen um, Jack's Mannequin play Everything in Transit in its entirety, and that was brilliant to me. I mean, it was incredible. I saw Motion City Soundtrack play Commit This to Memory in its entirety for the 10th anniversary of that album. Uh, also, very, very cool, because I, I really dig that album. Um, I almost got to see Arcade Fire play Funeral uh, in its entirety, but didn't. But I got scammed when I bought tickets on Craigslist. Didn't work out, unfortunately. Uh, that would have been a, a, a freaking magical show as well. So what I'm saying is 
You don't mess around with this stuff. This is like a big stuff. This isn't just a show. And you're, and I'm sure fans in Australia don't get to see uh, Ms. Lauren Hill very often, right? Uh, probably it's hard to get bands over there, um, you know, and when they do tour, it's a really big thing, right? So at Sydney, this show at Sydney is mainly fans doing the singing, often at Hill's request when she couldn't reach the notes. Uh, what was mainly heard was noise over a creaky, failing voice. Um, and so the tour had already drawn criticism due to the tardiness um, in, for her shows in, uh, and her late arrivals in Europe, right? Uh, she arrived almost 90 minutes late. She was feeling under the weather, warned the DJ, um, and turned out to be uh, a euphemism at times. She looked close to fainting. Uh, so not a lot of not great reviews from the tour um, uh, opener and it said her, that her show was plagued with production problems and she complained via hand gestures that her in-ear monitors were failing. Um, people, people all in, uh, ultimately not too happy there. Uh, she was clearly super sick and should have canceled her shows full stop, wrote one audience member on the event's Facebook page. If I wanted to see backup singers and hear musical coverage over a husky sick voice, I would have gone to the local pub. Um, and there, like I said, there are production issues too, um, uh, with the show. So she just seemed to get sicker and sicker on stage and singing. She's, she would sing like a bird when her voice was uh, better. Uh, I don't think I can do the next song she said at one point, but she gave it her best shot. Um, calling in sick to work must feel almost impossible when you've got a packed out arena that might not be, uh, available for a postponed shot, uh, slot, excuse me. So she, champed it out and tried to make it happen, but it just wasn't meant to be. So, um, hoping she gets better soon. Fingers crossed for her, but I, I know that's a tough, uh, a tough, tough situation to be in because, um, she's traveled all the way there. They've paid a lot of money to see, to see her. Um, I mean, yeah, she, she obviously tried and didn't just call, you know, call it off day of or anything like that. So, Someone who's been performing for so long, um, you know, I'm sure it's a rarity for uh, for her, and uh, hope she gets well soon. All right, let's end uh, the music news with uh, the the man, uh, Mr. Dave Grohl. Uh, this story about uh, Foo Fighters and uh, the Super Bowl. They played their Super Saturday Night show uh, the night before the Super Bowl in Atlanta uh, at the stadium before the stadium was transformed for the uh, for the Super Bowl. Um, show was really cool and they had some special guests including tom morello dave cause and uh, and others they p- performed um some covers uh including a a a bowie cover um they, i'm trying to think of what else they covered i don't remember offhand but i, I watched the show um and and it was really awesome and so um food fighters dave Grohl and taylor hawkins were um in the crowd at the the super bowl they weren't even with where the bands you know hang or in you know any special area they were just in the crowd and um and uh, and then the maroon five played the halftime show right so before the, the super bowl started um, the associated, an associated press reporter, um, talked to Dave Grohl and, uh, he said an amazing night, great show, an absolute blast. Um, and asked if he was planning a surprise appearance at the halftime show with Maroon 5. Grohl smiled and didn't seem much to want to answer. Uh, he said, I can't do any press. Sorry about that, but we're lucky enough to be able to come to the game today. It's a beautiful day. I love this city and I'm looking forward to it. So, um, there was a lot of football themed promotion around their super Saturday night show. So I guess some fans were speculating, would they be there as a surprise guest in the halftime show, uh, as well? Uh, they were not, uh, there in the halftime show. And, um, they, uh, a girl said, uh, at the show the, the night before that, uh, this ain't no halftime shit. This is good time shit. So, uh, I, th- I think people are taking that as a slight dig at Maroon 5. Um, you know, it is what it is. Maroon 5's performance, not great. Uh, all Adam Levine could do to, uh, to keep people's attention was try and shed layers and throw his clothes into the crowd. So, uh, 
probably, you know, the, the most exciting thing of that whole evening because the game was, there was not even a heartbeat to. So um, not a great performance uh, overall for Maroon 5. Not a great performance for any of the uh, players, really. The lowest scoring Super Bowl game in, in NFL history. And, um, <laughs> but, you know, you get with people you care about and you have uh, fun watching a game. I mean, that's all you can ask for. If you're going to the game, though, and you're paying those type of prices, whew, I'm sorry. That's too much. You, uh, Yeah, that's something you might want to ask for your money back on, right? Um, all right. That is our show for today. That's this episode of Concert Pipeline. Thanks again to Groundation for being on the podcast today. Uh, really excited to um, have had a, a great chat with Harrison Stafford. Um, and so let's talk about uh, what we got coming up in uh, coming weeks on Concert Pipeline. We're going to have an interview with a band called Gang of Four. They're playing at the Chapel, a sold-out show in San Francisco on, uh, on Saturday. Um, so we're going to have them on next week. Uh, we also have a couple of interviews in the works right now with uh, Barnes Courtney and uh, Future Feats that are playing at the Fox Theater uh, in Oakland on Monday. Uh, and um, with the, their opening for the Kooks, um, possible we might get an interview with the Kooks, but, uh, but I doubt it. Um, so that's what we've got cooking right now. So a couple things um, on the horizon, really exciting stuff and looking forward to um, to those interviews. So thank you for putting up with uh, a guy talking to himself for a half an hour. Uh, hopefully Jens is back next time and we can have a great conversation. So for all of us here at Concert Pipeline, I'm Steve Jones. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>